add my welcome again. My name is Eric Hoffman, the executive pastor here at Fellowship Franklin, and I get to teach about six to eight times a year, and excited to teach this passage in particular. Um, if you haven't already, turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is where we're going to be diving in. And so if you're new or joining us, relatively new, uh, we, we're walking through the book of Acts. And we're, we're not going uh, verse by verse um, in every part of Acts, but we're selecting certain key passages, certain things uh, through Acts as we work our way through. And we're and asking this question, God, what was your, the DNA of the church? What is the church to be about? And so we, we thought going through Acts would help us answer this question as we look at where we've been if, as fellowship for the last 20 years. God, what do you have in store for us for the next 20? And so as we're in a season of renewal, asking that question, we're asking, what are the key things to the DNA of the church? What is the church to be about? And so this renewal, this is part of uh, us partnering with the Spirit of God to ask him, what does he have in store for us? And So in the first couple messages of Acts, we saw pretty clearly with Lloyd and what Rob was saying, we see a couple key things of the DNA of the church. And just go over a couple of those. That the core part of the DNA of the church is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the power of God given to the people of God to be witnesses in the world. So it's the Spirit, which is our power, empowers the people of God to be witnesses for God. So by the Spirit... The people of God are able to do what we, on, on, by ourselves, would not be able to do. Be reconciled to God fully, be able to preach a message, be able to see people respond, to, to see the acts of the Holy Spirit doing this, and he empowers us to be witnesses. So the first couple chapters are focusing on who the Spirit is in relation to the church. And then now, this morning, we're going to be looking at just four or five verses here. And the reason why we're going to select these couple verses is um, throughout the book of Acts, there's a couple key places where we just want to stop and pause and just kind of dig a little deeper in because there's a lot of confusion around some of these passages or we want to bring clarity or we want to just kind of help you kind of understand these key passages. And this is one of them that we wanted to stop and uh, pause because this is talking about the message of the church. What is the message of the church? So at the, the beginning, we were talking about the spirit of God, the, the people of God, and the, to be witnesses of God. Now we're talking about what is the message that we carry as the church to the world. And so we want to be crystal clear on this. If, we gave, uh, if I just gave out a survey and said, hey, write down what is the clear message that the church is supposed to have, the gospel, what is the good news of Jesus? While we might say, like, we all have great clarity on that, we might get about 100 different answers on this. And so we, we wanted to pause in this because this passage in particular, there can be great confusion if we're not clear on it. There can be insecurity that bubbles up if we're not clear on this. And so we wanted to pause in this, especially in the area that we live uh, with the, the surround that we have. There's, there's many um, things that kind of weigh into this. And so we want to be really clear about what this is. We believe the gospel is of utmost importance for us to be, be clear on. That's the message that God has given us as the church to be witnesses. And what we believe about the gospel shapes all of our life with God and with others. So what we believe about the gospel actually shapes all of life with how we live with God and how we live with others. So what do I mean by this? Well, if we believe that we can, you can lose your salvation, 
then how you live life with God will be shaped with that, and how you live life with others will be shaped by that. You'll have this insecurity. If you believe that it's being saved is based on how good you are, well, then you will live a certain way trying to prove and perform that you are good enough to be saved. There's all sorts of implications for us, and we'll kind of expand on that. The reason why we want to get crystal clear is because we believe if you're a degree off on this, then you can miss the whole thing. It's like if I took off on the East Coast and I was a pilot, pretend I'm a pilot, I'm not, pretend I'm a pilot, I'm on the East Coast and I want to go, I want to go to a specific destination, I want to go to Seattle, Washington, and I'm a degree off the whole time, where am I going to end up? Not in Seattle, Washington. I'm probably going to be somewhere in the ocean, somewhere in the Gulf. I'm going to be, it's, that's the difference that a degree can make. And so we want to be crystal clear on what is this message that we as a church are supposed to carry. So let's look at the context. So if you're there in chapter 2, we're going to look at the context in an earlier part of chapter 2, Acts 2, 14 through 36. Peter is standing up and he delivers the first sermon of the church. And so as he's walking through, he's walking them through Old Testament passages that are pointing to who Jesus is, that Jesus was God's plan A, and that as he's doing that, he points to Joel 2. And in verse 21, it says, "And, and it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 23, and then Jesus this man, Jesus, was the predetermined plan. It was a foreknowledge of God. And then he goes on to say uh, that Jesus makes make certain, in, in verse 36, certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, and this Jesus whom you crucified. Ouch. I mean, that's not a secret message there. He is he's being point blank of who Jesus is, and he's pointing from the Old Testament. And then how do they respond? Well, they ask Peter, what are we to do? And in verse 37, they say this, they're pierced to the heart. They have this conviction. How are they to respond? And then verse 37 through 41, he tells them how they are to respond, gives them very specific instruction on how to be saved and what they need to do. So let's read verse 37. Now they heard this, they heard proclamation of Peter's message, and they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter responds to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and all who are fall off, far off as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, keep exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. In that day, they were added about 3,000 souls. So when we're talking about this, let's just look at verse 37, and then we're going to hone in on verse 38 particularly. But the piercing of the heart... Who is the one who can change hearts? God. But more specifically, it is the Spirit of God that does a work in people's hearts. So this is actually, as as we talked about, how are we as a church, we're to be empowered people of God, to be witnesses of God. How are we going to convince people that they need to be saved? Well, let's take the burden off us a little bit. As a witness, 
We proclaim the clear message of the gospel, but the reality is, is who can change that person's heart to see that they actually even have a need for a Savior, or to bring conviction, or to bring truth, to open up their eyes. It is the Spirit of God, first and foremost, who pierces the heart, brings their awareness to that actually doing this. This is the Spirit's work in this. So let's hone in on verse 38. From meeting with many of you over the, over the years, what we first heard about the gospel message dramatically shapes our lives from a young age. So what we first heard of the gospel can leave remnants in us for years and years to come. And so as I sit with you, one of the reasons why we want to talk about this is that many of us in this room grew up in a Church of Christ background, Roman Catholic background, Lutheran background, and the the ways that they would talk about this passage would be saying that baptism was essential for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. So baptism, be clear what they would say, baptism is the means by which salvation is assured or applied. So if you grew up in that background, you probably have heard this, probably have heard this verse uh, mentioned. So let me be clear. This is saying that it's not just faith in Christ alone that saves, but it's faith plus baptism for forgiveness of sins to be applied. So in Church of Christ, this is a verse that brings all sorts of wellspring of kind of the argument that flows out of there. Now this morning, what I am not doing this morning is, is saying, going after other churches and other denominations and, and trying to say, well, you're wrong and, and, and doing this. I want to speak as one of your pastors to you about the clarity of the gospel and why that matters so significantly. So this isn't something of like taking this message and sending it to all your Church of Christ family members, okay? This is like, see, I told you you're wrong. No, that's not what I want you to do. In sitting with you over and over and in join conversations and things like that, it becomes so evident that what we've come to understand about the gospel message from an early age can dramatically shape how we live with God and with others. And so I want to be so crystal clear that for some of you that this, this kind of topic or this type of thing brings insecurity or confusion or lack of clarity. I want to bring clarity to where there is confusion. I want to bring security to where there is insecurity. And so we want to walk through this, um, do, do that really well. So let's walk through uh, verse 38 just specifically. I'm going to read this. And then I want you to shout out the word that causes confusion, okay? So Peter said to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So what's the word that causes confusion in that sentence? For. This three-letter word causes great confusion. Okay, so the word in Greek is eis. It's E-I-S. And what it, how, it's, how it's typically used, like how we would typically use it, would be for, to get something. So if Moses said, here, go to Kroger and pick up some milk, I would be going to Kroger for milk, to get milk. It can also be used in this way of not in order to get, but because you have. So let me give this in just English of how we would read this, okay? So you, we walk into the post office. I don't know if the post office still does this, but like there's a wanted poster up, okay? I don't know. They probably don't, right? Um, there's no sketches of people who are wanted, but let's pretend they do, okay? So they, they have this wanted poster up, and it, and it names somebody, has a picture of them, and it says, wanted for armed robbery. 
Okay, now if we were going to look at that, would we, would we look at that and be like, oh, the federal government is looking for you because they want you to commit armed robbery. Like, we're looking for this person for armed robbery. We wouldn't read it that way. How would we, how would we read it? We would read it, this person is wanted because they've committed armed robbery, right? That's how we would read it. So grammatically, you can look at this and say, you know, either, either way, you can look at this and say to get or on the account of basis of. So bec- the way that we would, we would interpret this, we would say it's because you have been forgiven, is what Peter is saying, be baptized. Now, with this passage and with many other passages like this that cause, you know, kind of division or those type of things, the reality is, is grammatically, you usually can take some of these passages and look at them like that. There's two different ways of reading it. And I wish it wasn't the case, but the, the reality is, is there's men and women who love God on both sides of this passage. But when we are looking at this, this is where I want us to, to look at in hermeneutics, how, which is the word for how we study the Bible. I want to implore you this morning to start thinking, how do I study the scriptures? If we hear someone on TBN or a preacher on, on TV and he's, he's just going through, like, how do we interpret what this person is saying is actually what the Bible means? Because what's so easy to do, especially in our culture and where, the, the time that we live in, it's so easy to proof text. It's so easy to take just a verse from here, there, there, you know, and then just make your case and make an argument. You're seeing that with key issues all throughout right now. So how do we study the scriptures? Well, my, the way that we would do that, the way that we prepare our messages for this is we are going to look at context, not just in that verse. We're going to look at context in the paragraph. We're going to look at context in the book or chapter. We're going to look at the New Testament. We're going to look at the New Testament, Old Testament, the whole, what's the overarching view of how God is, is bringing this through his word. And so we're going to bring the weight of the whole to it, not just a singular so in the light of that, how do we then interpret this beyond just a grammatical case? How do we look at this? How do we study this? What is the conclusion that we would come to that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone? How do we get there if it's not just going to be based on a grammatical issue? Well, let's look at this. Well, I, w- I would just look at uh, Peter. This is his first sermon, so let's look at the other places that Peter gives sermons. Let's give the other places where Peter calls people to salvation. And there's, there's, I'm going to give you three examples of this. Acts 3, 12 through 26. So if you're taking notes, write down Acts 3, 12 through 26. Uh, chapter 5, he, he delivers another message beginning in verse 29. And then in chapter 10, he does this as well. In each of those instances, he never calls people to baptism as for forgiveness of sins. So if Peter was, in fact, preaching that you had to be baptized in order to be forgiven, then why would he not have reiterated in these other three places in Acts? So we just look at the messenger of this. So in the New Testament, there's a commentator, John Polhill, who writes, in no other text in Acts, is baptism represented about bringing forgiveness of sins? Let me say that again. In no other text in Acts is baptism presented as bringing about forgiveness of sins. Now, there are plenty of times where you'll, you'll hear in Acts where they'll, they'll preach the gospel, and then they'll 
see repentance or faith come about, and then they'll be baptized. But it's never tied to forgiveness of sins that they had to be baptized. So the other problem with this interpretation of, of seeing baptism as a means of forgiveness, to be a forgiveness to be applied, is by looking at other scriptures beyond just where we are in Acts, of looking at a broader context. And so when we look at that, we would just, I'm just going to give you four. I'm going to give you four big chunks, and then we're going we're gonna to talk just a little bit about these. But here's where I want you to do uh, the work on your own. I want you to not just take my word for it that I'm just quoting these and this is what these means. I want you to actually go write these down and actually read some of these passages. Let's just go to John 3, 16, 36. I mean, many of you could spout off John 3, 16. How does it begin? That whosoever believes... Now, it doesn't say whosoever believes and then is baptized, then forgiveness of sins, right? What's the basis that someone inherits eternal life? Is belief. In verse 36, it goes, in that same chapter, it goes on to say the exact same thing, that it's belief that inherits eternal life. Now, look at Romans 4, 1 through 17. The, the, the part of Romans, if, we, if we're just holding our pace there, I'm not going to dive through the whole thing, but if you're looking at Romans, uh, begin with chapter 3. So this week... Go in and look at chapter 3. Even actually just begin in chapter 1. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's chapter 1. Then he goes on to say in chapter 1 that this righteousness, this, the good news of Jesus being revealed, is to be received. That's, that was Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2 goes on to say, the building up a case for chapter 3 of justification by faith. That we are being justified, this is verse 3.24, for all, we know verse 3.23 is, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Then he goes on in 3 to continue that argument. Chapter 4 is the key one that I want you to, to jump in on, that justification by faith is evidenced, not just in the New Testament, also in the Old Testament. For in, the, in verse 9 it says, Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the same. How is someone saved? Through faith in God, in particular in the New Testament, in Jesus. And then it's credited. Jesus' righteousness is credited to that person. So not that person's righteousness that they bring to God, Romans 1, but the person's faith in Jesus, his righteousness is, is accredited to them. Then go to Galatians. If you look at Galatians chapter 2 and 3, the book of Galatians just keeps uh, this theme going. And and actually, the whole book of Galatians does this. But he's he's talking about that we need rescue in chapter 1. And then in 2 and 3, he brings the council of Jerusalem together. And they're talking about this very issue is, what does it mean for someone to be saved? How How do I present this in verse 16? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. They are justified by faith, not by the works of the law. And they continue to go on, that I live by faith in the Son of God. And then verse 3, and chapter 3 goes on, for all of you are sons, and this is verse 26, all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ. That's Galatians 2 and 3. And then if we were to continue on, 
with another letter, we would just go to Ephesians. And so as we walk through Ephesians, we see very clearly that it is God who puts this plan into action, that he lavished his grace upon us, that it's in him that we have new life, that we have this inheritance. And then it says in in chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved on us, that though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then we get down to verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one would boast. So when we study the scriptures, we're compelled not to just look at an isolated verse in a, in a context. We have to go beyond just that verse. We have to go to the context of the chapter. We have to go to who's preaching this. We have to go to Acts. Or what the, what's the message of Acts? We have to go to the message of the rest of the New Testament. We have to go to the message of the whole Bible. And we see from beginning to end that it is never about someone being able to present a righteousness on their own account or a work on their own account or be good enough, but it is only because there was one who intercepted and intervened in our life, who we were dead in our transgressions and sin. And thanks be to God that he did not leave us there. But God, rich in his mercy, decided to intervene and is by the righteousness of Christ, not by our righteousness that we come. And we come by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And so that's how we would begin to interpret this. But let me be um, clear of what we believe at Fellowship. We hold that salvation is by faith alone, it is a gift of God according to his great grace that cannot be earned but only received. And it is faith in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. So the act of baptism or the act of the Lord's table that he's given the church is not a means to be, of grace being applied to us to get salvation or forgiveness of sins. But baptism is not a path to forgiveness, but because we have received forgiveness. Repentance comes from the kindness of God that leads us to faith. So what's the danger here when we go one degree off of what the message of the church is to be around the good news? What's the danger? Well, here's the danger, and here's where I want to hone in on application the rest of the time. When something is added, faith plus this, in this instance, faith plus baptism, it moves us to a treadmill that we cannot get off. It moves us to a treadmill that we are the ones striving to keep this thing going. It moves to us being the center of our faith. And so this is why I want to be so clear today. This is why many conversations around the gospel, why I spend so much time discipling others by, through the gospel and being clear on the gospel, is because when we believe that it's something plus faith, then it's faith plus whatever is needed to keep my salvation. Faith plus doing enough. Faith plus the way I appear. Faith plus this. Faith plus. It just keeps building and building. Let me just tell you from my story. I grew up in a denomination where you could lose your salvation. And though it wasn't like talked about like every Sunday of being like, hey, John, just a reminder, you can lose your salvation. Don't lose it. You know, it like wasn't talked about in that way. It was just kind of in this undergirding of the foundation of the church, just the kind of the way that we looked at. We looked at, uh, we lived in this uh, dry county. And so if you touched alcohol, it was like, that's the unforgivable sin, you know? So like even being like seen around someone who was, is like, oh man, our like, 
are they questioning me in this? And so it became this uh, way of performance. And the thing that I learned to do subconsciously from a young man, this is why I want to be so crystal clear, because it formed and shaped in me, and it took a long time for me to unlearn a lot of this. The thing that started to happen was I started to create this law and this system of my own and basing my acceptance on what I did. And I would also base it, um, because I created this law and this system on my own, I would also uh, measure other people up to that. So I would critique and compare and contrast for how I was doing measured against other people. Well, I'm doing more than that person, so I'm doing pretty well. Or then I would come up against someone who was doing more in this own law that I had created, and I see that they're doing more than me, and so I feel the shame. Like, I need to do more. I need to pull myself up. And the thing that ended up happening was I didn't read the Bible to, like, engage with the God of the Bible. I read the Bible to make myself feel less guilty, to check a box, to, to make myself feel kind of um, like I was cleaned up enough or would be acceptable to God now or to, to know more or to do more. And I started using other people and I started using God for my own benefit. Because the gospel wasn't crystal clear that it, wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with me. But when it started to shift, when it started to shift, everything started to shift. See, I realized, I would have said in that moment, if you would have asked me, hey, are you saved by grace alone? I would have proclaimed grace alone as well. Okay? I just would have, if you would have got underneath the surface, my functional trust was me. And I was, I was putting my trust in myself. And so, sure, God, you know, you saved me, but I'm the one who's going to justify me. And in conversations I have with many of you, many of you relate to this, of growing up in this, and you kind of feel like, you know, like, I have to, like, kind of prove that I'm good enough for God, like, that he chose me or that he died for me. Like, I have to prove that, or I have to prove to others that I'm actually bearing fruit, or it just kind of is centered in us. And so if we're not crystal clear, it kind of breeds an insecurity uh, within us. And so what I was essentially saying with my life was the cross was good, but it wasn't good enough. There was something that needed to be added to this. And a question that that left me wrestling was, was when someone asked me about the gospel, they said, Eric, if there was no hell, would you choose Jesus? And I was talking with someone uh, this week, and we were, we were walking through the join process. And I was reminded of why we need to preach and be so clear on the gospel is because when we say a prayer to escape hell, we can make our faith be about how sincere we were in the prayer. It becomes about our faith in a prayer rather than the prayer our, we, were, we were praying to, the God we were praying to. And so there's these subtle shifts that we can make. And so I want us to be so crystal clear on this. Faith plus anything, it always is going to beg the question of how much is enough. And it's always going to put us at the center rather than Christ at the center, which is who our life is going to be found in. So the, the thing that I want us to be super clear is, it is not the amount of faith that you have. It is who your faith is is in. The gospel is about the person of Jesus, period. And so our faith is in him. So it's not about the amount of our faith or how how sincere we are. It's it's who the object of our faith is in. And biblical faith, 
that, that believes that Jesus lived a life that we couldn't, died in our place, that the debt that we owed was raised to life by the, by the Spirit of God, that, that when we have faith in Jesus, that it actually produces because we receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 38. And the Spirit begins doing this regenerative work. The Spirit begins doing this restorative work. And we actually move from, I'm my own, to I am his. And he's the one that actually dictates our life. So by trusting Jesus, I'm shifting my trust from myself to him. Faith, then, is what Peter is calling them to, is repenting from finding life apart from God or finding life in our own system. And let me just be really clear on this, that you don't have, it's not just the religious that have their own systems and laws. Have you ever met anyone who, who's not religious at all, but if you eat a dairy product or you eat animal or you eat whatever, like you're coming against the wrath of that person? Okay, so like we, without the gospel, have to create security, excuse me, security within ourselves. We have to create our own law, our own system of being accepted. And we do that by other means. It's, if it's not by Christ, it's going to be by our efforts. So religious people do that. They end up using God for themselves. And irreligious people do that in finding life apart from God. And then they make that the system and standard that they measure against. Both need the gospel. Let's look at verse 37. It says that when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And then Peter in verse 38 says, when you have faith, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a key point that we don't often talk about, but when and how did your faith start? Anytime when we tell our stories of how we came to faith, we always tell them, well, then I chose Jesus, or I prayed the prayer. And who's at the center of how we usually tell our stories is I. But when we see here, when we see in other places, of, of the places that I just mentioned, of Galatians 2 and 3 and, and Romans, we see that the Spirit of God is the one who brings about the conviction and opens up people's eyes to see their, res- their need of rescue and who Jesus is clearly. Clearly, Peter preaches a clear message of who Jesus is, but who opens their eyes to see that is the Spirit of God at work. So f- even how our faith begins, it begins with God and the Spirit doing a work. The Spirit then empowers us to have faith, and then the Spirit applies what Jesus did on the cross to our lives. So from beginning to end, our faith, even our faith, is a gift of God being received by him. So the Spirit shows us our need. He shows us our, our Redeemer clearly, and then he empowers us to have faith. And then when we receive the Spirit, When we receive the Spirit, the Spirit indwells us, He teaches us, He guides us, He empowers us, He gives us gifts according to His will to bless the church and bring us up into maturity. He changes our desires to want to obey God. He enables us to walk with Christ and to understand His Word. Galatians 3.3, he's he's, he's speaking of the Spirit. He says, if you began by the Spirit, if your faith began by the Spirit, the Spirit doing a work, then why would you turn to the flesh? 
So we are saved by faith and the Holy Spirit indwells us and we continue in faith and saving faith leads us to a life of becoming more and more like Christ. And it changes our desires and it changes our responses and then it becomes more about how God has loved us. Well, God has lavished his grace. And so if I'm coming on the basis of grace, I'm not coming on the basis of my works. Now, I was thinking about that. If I am coming on the basis of my works, then who holds the control? Who still holds our life? Well, I do, because I determine how much I'm going to give God. But if you come on the basis of grace, who are you indebted to? Him. And his grace shows you that you are his, not on a merit of yourself, but his. And now he has your whole life. And so our response is to live in that way. Let me say a word just really clear, uh, quickly on baptism. Baptism, then, is a response because you have been saved. It is a response of obedience to show and to express this message that you received of what Jesus has done. So it's a public profession of your faith and who your faith is in. It represents identification with Jesus and identification with his church, that you're part of his family. We see in the New Testament, especially in Acts, when someone believes, they're quickly Baptized, And so I think there's, there's something for us to be called to. I think a call to action for us is if you um, have put your faith and trust in Christ and you've yet to be baptized, I would just implore you to consider that as the next step of obedience to say, God, I'm putting my faith in you and my trust in you and I want to be known by others as yours that you dictate and guide my life and that is an expression of your grace at work in my life and I want to proclaim this clear message to the church and beyond the church to those that I need to, uh, need to know. So our next baptism service is November 12th. And if you have questions, if you, if you grew up kind of wrestling um, with some of this and, and you have questions about infant baptism, you have just questions, I would love to just grab coffee. Me or one of the other pastors would love to just talk to you about that. But one of the things that I think that we need to kind of hone in on is, is religion. This is when we go faith plus anything to deem ourselves acceptable to God is that we're trying to change our lives by changing our outward behaviors. But who do we need to have in our lives to change our hearts. Who can change even our hearts? It's the Spirit of God. And so we continually, not just once put our trust in Christ, but continually see that the Christian life is not just hard, it's impossible. And that we need the Spirit of God to do a work in us, to, to renew our hearts, to change our hearts. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to do what Peter called the people to do. How should we, in response to this message, how should we respond? How does Peter ask them to respond? Repent. And so this morning, I want us just to think about where have we shifted from our firm foundation of Christ. In repentance, we are saying, I've been trying to on my own. I've been seeking for life apart from you. I've been doing it in my own strength. I've been, I've been weighed down by this burden. And I want you right now just to go and ask the Spirit of God to, where do you need to turn back to Christ? This isn't a, just a one-time thing, but continually, where are we looking for life, acceptance, value, and identity apart from him? 
and ask the band to come up. So would you be mindful of that? I'm, I've, I've thought through of, of several places where we may need to repent. Maybe recently you've been looking for comfort, not in Christ, but you've been looking in comfort in other things, in Netflix to comfort you, or entertainment, or alcohol to numb you. You just want to escape. Or maybe you've been seeking approval and acceptance, not found in Jesus, but in those around you and others' view of you. And even the good things that you've done, you've done out of a heart, not to serve God, but to be noticed or to feel good. Maybe you've been seeking power and influence, not by helping others, but to fill yourself. Maybe you haven't been reading your Bible just to find life, or to be in communion with God, but you've been doing it to make yourself feel less guilty. Even the good things that we've done, we've done with the wrong motivations. And when we take an inward look, when we do an introspective, we actually see that our sin and our depravity of what we can be prone to is so bad that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die. But I also see that because of what he has done, I am more loved than I've ever been before. And he has given me the spirit that I can live as a new creation, not as one who is burdened in bondage, but I can live with him, empowered by him. So when we see our sin of where we have a tendency to turn, we have a tendency to say, I'm alone in this, I'm isolated, I'm in shame. The good news of the gospel, he doesn't leave us there. He actually sees us of where we turn, and he actually invites us to look at these and say, you don't have to do this. And the gospel, the good news, the clear message of the church is that people can get God. They can be restored to a relationship with God. And that is the message that we get to proclaim is that you don't have to be left in your sin. You don't have to be left finding life apart from yourself. You don't have to be left on this treadmill of asking the question, how good is good enough? You don't have to be left alone trying to find your worth and value in your work or your appearance or how much you have, or if you're in right relationship with someone, you are right with God because of the basis of what Jesus has done. And so when we put ourselves in that situation, we see that we are his, not on a merit of ourselves, but entirely by grace. And so when Ephesians 1 is talking that you have every spiritual blessing in heaven and earth is because of him, not of anything that we have done. And so when we come on the basis of that, Let me speak to those of you who are facing hard circumstances, those of you who are facing illness or facing death or facing things that you wish weren't going the way that they were going of the hardship that you're facing. The reality is, is though those things may drain your energy, if those things may drain your spirit, the reality is they can never take your life. Because your life is not found in a circumstance. It is not found in your strength. Your life is now hidden in Christ. And there is no possibility for anyone to take your life away because your life is now found in Christ. So that is why we shift our lives to him and say, Jesus, I want my life to be found in you. I want my identity to be found in you because I so often feel like I'm losing my life. Would you remind those people this morning, God, 
that their life is found in you. And there is no power, there is no scheme of man that could pluck us from your hand. Oh, what a Savior. Jesus, this isn't about trusting you once. It's about shifting our trust continually to you over and over again. Let us repent and find a Jesus not looking at us in disappointment, but looking at us with open arms, calling us home, calling us to freedom, calling us to this new life that he's created, empowered by his Spirit. Oh, what a Savior. I am not saved because of what I have done, but because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his life, his atoning death, his resurrection through the Spirit, that we are made right with him. And death was arrested and our lives are found with him. Would you stand? Would we respond as a people that are sure foundation, that the reason why we can sing this morning, the reason why we can proclaim this message is because it's not on the basis of how good you were this week, but on the basis of his goodness. And that changes everything. That changes how we respond to God. That changes how we respond to others. So let us sing and proclaim this together.